Storymakers. Thanks for joining us this week on Storymakers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And I'm Angie Powers. And this week was special for me as Elizabeth and I got to sit down with Steve Goldblum. I was lucky enough to help out as second assistant camera on his feature, Remember Me, which is currently in post-production and should be opening early in 2016. The film stars Steve, Joel Downton, and the incomparable Rita Moreno. Steve wrote, directed, and as I mentioned before, stars in the film and kept the whole set in stitches throughout the production. His humor and awesome approach to the artist's life sparkles in this episode. Remember Me is being produced by Sparklight Films, and you'll hear us talk about Heather Haggerty and Annie Madison, the founders of Sparklight. We also mention Zach, who is a compatriot, good friend, and Steve's editor. Corinne. Corinne, who was the boom op in Remember Me, and also someone I'm trying to hornswoggle into my feature production that will happen later this year. And Gabe. Gabe was the first assistant camera on Remember Me and will be the cinematographer for that same project I mentioned before. Uh, A little bit more about Steve, who is a writer, producer, and performer based in Los Angeles. Um, He in this year he created Brief but Spectacular, a great weekly interview series for PBS NewsHour. And before that, he created and hosted Everything But the News for PBS Digital Studios. And the USA Today ranked that show best web series of 2014. Since 2014, he served as a special correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. And he has a new satirical variety series with AOL's Engadget that will be released in February of 2016. He's a dual citizen of Canada and the US, and his production company is Second Peninsula. I also wanted to mention that I have a free writing craft class happening Tuesday, January 5th, 2016 at 6 p.m. Pacific time online. So wherever you are in the world, if you'd like to join us, please sign up for the free class at bookwritingworld.com. And I would love to uh, have you there. And meanwhile, enjoy this great, inspiring conversation we got to have with Steve Steve Goldblum. Goldblum. Join us now as we explore appropriate beverages for podcasting. No, I just did a quick shot of. We're um, doing coffee for an earlier, yeah. earlier podcast recording. Yeah. Were you doing beer, Angie, at one point? Well, you know, sometimes you get a little nervous, and I thought, you know, I don't know. Do you know Pilar Alessandra? Have you heard of her? Uh, sure. Yeah, she's actually like a script consultant person. She has her podcast. In the first, like, I don't know, ten episodes, it was all with a glass of wine, like every single <laughs> with a glass of wine, and so I felt. I had precedent. I could do that. So, but we can't give offer you a beer, so that's a little yeah. awkward. Yeah. Okay, no. I went to interview this photographer who's like eighty five years old, pretty like, you know, he's not like super famous, but you know, he's got permanent collections in the Met and everything. And, and I was cutting his mic on, and he goes, "I just took a huge glass of vodka. I'm so." <laughs> I was like, "Really? You're nervous." I mean, that was so funny. He was just like, I, before we got there, he must have just like chugged a thing of vodka. That's that'll, good. That'll make for a relaxed interview. Well, the irony, yeah. The irony there, of course, is that vodka is supposed to not smell. So he might have been under the impression that he wouldn't be exuding alcohol, but then he told you anyway. So, yeah, yeah, I know. I think he just offered it up. That's good. How did it go after that? Was it, was it a relaxed interview? He, yeah, he was extraordinary. This guy, you'll like him. Ken Vansickle, uh, he's just unbelievable. And, and his work speaks for itself. But he, he, he was really, uh, he was an interesting guy. Well, you know, one of the things I actually wanted to ask you is that you have such a relaxed 
I don't even want to say affect because that sounds like it doesn't sound very relaxed, but you are so relaxed on camera and sort of funny in this very easygoing way. Um, it, it almost seems improvisational, but I know you also work from scripts that you write. Um, so I just wanted to ask you about um, that, how, how that, how that works for you and how that works for you with, in combination with kind of planned storytelling. I think I do. I feel really relaxed when there's a camera. I don't know why. But I, I do feel like, I don't know, because you're kind of in control when there's a camera. It's actually not, I mean, it, it, it's, uh, and then when there's not a camera, I'm probably a little more tense, <laughs> you know, at like parties. And I mean, I can have fun and stuff like that. But it, the, even the fun I have is tense, you know, it's all wired up and mm -hmm. it's not relaxed. It's not super relaxed. And I'm a pretty tense person, like, you know. I feel like I, even today, like early this morning, I walked into one of those really cool coffee shops, you know, in LA. And it was just like, I was the least relaxed person in the coffee shop. Everybody's yeah. so cool and relaxed. And so I'm not very cool and relaxed as a person, but something about when we start filming, I just feel like, oh, I have some control here. I can. And so I'm relaxed by that. Mm -hmm. Where other people, I, I mean, it's funny because people go in the other direction who are really cool and calm and you think would make these like great characters you put a camera in front of them and they like they just start going like this yeah <laughs> I, I, yeah i think uh, i'm the opposite of that nice so can we see your cup again though can i just see the wording on your cup so here, this is um, the greatest gift somebody gave me it says stevie's mug uh-huh and then it says second peninsula llc second peninsula is not far from where okay. Peggy is in Nova Scotia, where my family's from. But oh. that is cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, uh, you know, we were looking through some of your PBS stuff, and um, I was sort of curious how you made the leap because a lot of your PBS stuff is a little bit, somewhat based in a little bit more reality or a short form, and then you've made the leap to the long form feature narrative feature film. narrative film. We hope, yeah. Yes, yeah, <laughs> successfully. Um, so the two pieces I have is like sort of one, um, kind of the process for short form for you versus the process for a longer form piece and what those things look like. I think the short form pieces are really good uh, sandboxes to experiment and try new things. It's really not, it's like dating. It's really non-committal. Uh -huh. like be crazy in one episode, watch it, realize, oh, I don't want to do that again. I'm going to go in another direction. And you really can like compare what worked and didn't. Whereas this movie, and this is obviously my first movie experience, but I can't believe how committed you have to be to it. And just thinking of something that you thought was funny and seeing if it still is funny or you thought was moving. And if you're moved by it a year later, that's extraordinary. So I feel like I've learned so much in the last year over, you know, I always wish like with the movie, I, I keep thinking like, oh, I just want to get back in there and tweak the grandma character and just like bring a little more nuance to that part. Or I'm always thinking like, man, if I could just get in there, but you kind of have to, and that, but everyone does. I mean, that's why I think movies are so, so hard. That even the people who you think are the greatest, like you, I, I always think, like if there's a comedian I really like and they make a movie, I'm like, oh, it's going to be a great movie. And you realize they struggle because, especially like a comedian who gets to go up and 
try something every night, every night, every night, and then all of a sudden they have to commit. Those are like the most non-committal people. Right. So in terms of like rotating material. Have you learned any strategies for, for sticking with it, for the commitment? Um, I think really trusting yourself maybe and going for it. Um, I mean, what I learned in the movie, and I wrote, directed, and acted in the movie, which is insane. And I think I would never probably, I would probably never do that again. I would probably never do, yeah, unless, you know, unless I became hugely, hugely talented over the next 10 years, I wouldn't do that again because, like, you just can't direct your, I mean, I wish I could have acted, really just, like, focused on that or directed. And when you're toggling between the two, it's just, I mean, I, I saw, so I rewatched the movie thinking, like, why am I not more focused? Ah, uh, interesting. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which, right? I would also say that you've also got a pretty good team. You came in with Zach. Zach's your good buddy, and yeah. you guys work together. So I think, does that help you with some of the long term commitment pieces, or does Zach have commitment phobia? I don't know. Zach, um, you're very committed. Yes. <laughs> How did you build your team? I know that's, that's something that I think is a really wonderful boon for a creative artist. Well, I didn't, I mean, this team I feel like was built for me by Nanu and Heather, like they're the ones that built the team. And like, I, I, I honestly, I, I do feel really, really lucky to be at like the center of the team because I didn't, there was no team. And I, in fact, when we showed up on the set and Angie would, can verify this, you know, maybe, but I was like, what are all these people doing here? <laughs> I didn't realize really how big it was going to be and truly how collaborative everything was going to be until I showed up. And, but I, but Heather and I knew must've known that the whole time and they hired everyone. And, and so I'm just used to working in silos and really small boxes with like two people. Mm -hmm. And it's a huge privilege to work with a lot of people. And then you think, Oh, I just want to, I, you know, take it seriously and prepare. You can never do enough preparation so that you can actually enjoy and do a good job in the moment rather than, you know, it's like being prepared for a, a presentation. Like you can't do a good job unless you truly are prepared. Otherwise you're just sort of panicking the whole time. Right. Um, I actually am just reminded of a, of a scene when we were shooting up at the uh, carousel in Berkeley and what a wonderful scene that was, how hysterical it was both to be there and then to watch it again later. And um, I'm wondering, like, how much of that was kind of in the moment and how much of that was planned? Because you have scripted. some, you've got some scripted. Yeah, you've got some great humor in there. So that's a great, I'm glad you brought up that scene because that scene is something that I'll probably take credit for in the movie because, you know, my name is as the director. I really had nothing to do with that scene. I never wrote that scene that was written yeah. by another and then new. I, there was always supposed to be this moment. I was fighting for a car wash scene where we would, me and... Barry would drive through a car wash that she would be saying, I want to go through a car wash. It would sort of be childlike, but then it would also be fun. And I could picture the three of us in the car wash and I never got the car washing. I still don't understand why I didn't get it because I still think it would have been cheaper <laughs> to do that than rent out that damn carousel. But of course, so I never understood the carousel. And then now seeing it, it's probably one of the greatest scenes in the whole movie. I think it's probably the best scene in the whole movie. And I had so little to do with it. But, but also it was great because I had so little to do with it that I was able to really act in it. Mm -hmm. Just be like, oh, I'm just gonna, I don't know what's going on here really. I'm just gonna run 
So it's a, it's like a decent performance. You brought a lot of humor to it, Steve. I mean, like you had the pratfalls with the falling and the catching up, exhaustion, yeah. and it was so funny. Even I mean, we were dying, hiding over in the little cart area, like the food area. But then watching it again, because you wonder, is this going to translate to yeah. the actual film? Like it's hysterical here, sure, but does it translate to the screen? And it does, and it's. Yeah. Hysterical. So some of that you had to have kind of maybe played with a little bit there. I could see it, but I, it's also just about trusting people. Like I really did trust Heather and I knew that they knew what they were doing with that. And they did, like they really sold it. And they, you know, the, the similar is, tr is true for like scene, like the audition scene or something that I probably fought really hard for that audition scene in the hotel room. Mm -hmm. It's going to be really funny. Or the, the scene at the, you know, with the, and then of course using that at the end in the detective scene. Stuff like that was really important to me. But yeah, that brought, like, th that was a huge moment. And, and you can hear Nanu say story and that moment where Nana comes a lot. And it's totally true. You see it. Mm. I don't think I saw that in the moment. Because when you're shooting that in the moment, it doesn't look like anything but Rita Moreno kind of like hungry, waiting for lunch, <laughs> sitting in the doing the same thing. So I, I don't, I didn't see it in the moment. I was like, I don't, I don't know if this is going to work all that. You know, I, I, I still had trouble picturing it, but yeah. I knew the physical stuff was very funny when we were running around, but that great emotional moment where the camera stops on her and she looks at it, it's beautiful mm -hmm. and totally ties the whole movie together. So I guess that goes to your, my earlier point of just like being around really, really good company and smart people who, and trusting them. Cause that's, you know, that's a great scene. What does was this the first uh, feature length screenplay you wrote ever wrote? Yeah, I had started and stopped writing a bunch of scripts before, but it's the first one I ever saw through completion. And why? Why this one? Um, I'd always wanted. To, actually, I had this idea for a short film where um, you're visiting your grandparents and one of them dies, and so that opening scene. And the humor and sadness in that moment where you're panicking and you don't know what to do. And I always thought it would be fun if, I mean, I, that used to ha cross my mind when I would visit my grandfather, who was about a hundred, but he was caretaking for a 90 year old woman who d had dementia. And so I always thought, what would, how, what would that look like if he, and he did, he really would rest in precarious looking positions. Where he, thought <laughs> he, might have he might have already died. So that, that, I always thought there's so much humor in there and, uh, and grit. And I mean, really like you, you have to figure things out. And, and, um, so I like that so much tension and conflict in that one scene. And so I think I initially thought we were going to make a short film. I think Heather and the new thought we were going to make a short film, but then we got to spend more time with these characters. So the, the process of writing the script though, they were, it was like going to uh, screenwriting school because they, I would send uh, drafts every Wednesday or something for, for a few months oh, and wow. give me their notes and we'd go back forth like that. And I think I had a lot of, hu the humor in there I had, the structure in there I really needed help on. So they would say, because I just never studied screenwriting, mm -hmm. you know, and there's just people like Nanu and, and, and Heather who have studied screenwriting. So they're like at the end of the first act, you need to be flowing into the second and then triggered the third. And it's like, so I was learning all that while we were, while writing it. So what's your storytelling background? Uh, much shorter. 
much, but I've always been a good storyteller. I mean, I, I just called my grandfather, the other one turned 91 today and he's very, very funny and he's a phenomenal storyteller. And, uh, so I think I was probably always, I, I think I inherited that from my dad's side of the family, but the, the ability to tell a story like you were there, even if you weren't there and bring a lot of humor into it and uh, just internalize comedy and storytelling and timing. I think I always had, you know, good comedic timing and with, with storytelling. So that, I, and so that lended itself well to short stories, uh, short films. And I consider the, everything but the news and things like that, like short films kind of, mm -hmm. you know, cause you got to some of them at least. Um, but I always felt like the stuff that I was writing was better if it was acted out. Like I would take creative writing classes in high school. And I think on the merit, if you held up my writing versus someone else, it wouldn't be as sophisticated. It might not be as new, nuanced, but when I was, if I was able to perform it, I could get the timing because you're not in control of the reader with the timing. So I would love, the, the, I would shine in those moments in school when you were able to sort of bring your stuff from the page and I knew I had more to offer there. So I think that was a, like a, a turning point for me where I was like, oh, I don't want to just hand this in and let them interpret. I knew I'd be more valuable as a writer. In fact, that's why I was a better writer for TV, for news, because it's, it's just so much the way people talk. You know, it's the way people talk and explain things rather than, I was not a print reporter and I don't think I would be a very good print reporter. Um, although it's something to improve on. Well, it's interesting, right? Because, you know, you've written this character in Remember Me who has this um, quasi journalistic job and um, who was also himself a somewhat uh, uncomfortable person. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I often read about, but funny. But funny. I often read about comedy sort of being an exaggeration. Yeah. So uh, would it be fair to say that there's some, like maybe a tiny kernel of, you know, sort of an autobiographical piece, just tiny. Yeah. Then exaggerated to a much, much larger, larger. Totally, totally exaggerated, but totally that, I mean, I think that I wanted to bring some of the experiences I had in working in news and seeing people and, and uh, really needing validation, you know, like in the beginning, uh, you know, wanting praise from people, wanting to then to see your work, but, you know, doing the work, really doing interesting work for the, all the wrong reasons. Mm. Um, that's probably a version of me for sure. Definitely earlier when I realized I shouldn't be in news because I was like, oh, what am I doing? You know, there's other people who are better equipped and have the tools to do this. I'm more interested in spending time in something else, like the theater of production or just theater in general. So, but yeah, there's definitely an element of that. Uh, though I do enjoy the other night I went to an acting workshop for actors and writers and I played some like North Dakota character who was really out of it and it was so much fun. And so I think in the future, it might be fun to just step outside that, like that little box and try something new. And do you feel like you're going to take on the uh, second feature film? Is this a medium you're going to explore again? I would love to, but I, I would do it differently. I would not, uh, either I would act in it or I would 
hopefully you know get another chance to direct but i wouldn't do both i would never do both again yeah and how about writing are you are you writing now yeah i am writing now um i'm i find that you can't spend enough time with people like i really do love interviewing people um like for for example i spent time with uh even heather's son Mm -hmm. uh asa who's uh 11 or 12 like to really spend like we went out for coffee i mean he had ice cream i had coffee but it was like to spend an hour with him and and sit in his world a little bit is so fascinating i mean there's nothing i can i'm not in that so i think pushing yourself to to get outside the places that you really just go to and hang every day is so helpful and if you're a curious person or you know, you're a good storyteller, it really lends itself to being there because you can, I can report back to you what it's like to be in Ace's mind right now, you know, like to be, to have 30 different email accounts and to play these games with people in Portugal and to know how to use the computer so your parents can't find anything that you did. Like to have that kind of power at that age. And, and Heather, if you're listening, that didn't happen. I know, I know. <laughs> But it's fascinating, you know? Like I was talking to, I interviewed Danny Strong the other day for PBS, the guy that created Empire, wrote Game Change, Recount, and the actor from Girls and Mad Men. Like he's just this fascinating guy. He's written extensively about politics for Game Change. Uh -huh. And he's written, uh, I mean, created a show about, he did The Butler too, he wrote The Butler, and about um, Empire, you know, the hip hop business. He's a short Jewish guy from Orange County. It had nothing to do with politics, nothing to do with the hip hop business, but he just wanted to know about those worlds. He was fascinated about those worlds. And sometimes it takes like an outsider to come in mm -hmm. and, and interpret someone who's just super curious. And so I, I'm learning more about it, like how to actually take a, a, a form of journalism and put it into the creative process, which is, I, th I really want to like, I'd like to touch into that. I, I like to tap into that a little bit more than I have. Can you tell us some of the secrets of great interviewing? <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I think I've gotten better at it. Uh, in the beginning, I remember interviewing Amos Oz when I was like, you know, the great Israeli poet when I was 24. And I had written a thesis on him in university. And then I had this job where I somehow convinced somebody that I, it was important to get him on a radio interview. They would ultimately cut out, or no, they left my voice in, but it was for <laughs> before. I couldn't remember if they cut out my voice or not. But anyways, I was so prepared to speak with him. And I like memorized all these super showy, sophisticated questions that demonstrated, I mean, they were interesting to him, but they also were about a sentence or two too long to show how much I knew about him. And I remember like thinking that I nailed that interview I just just hit it out of the park. And I, I was like, look how smart I sound. And he sounds interested. And he says, thank you for your great questions. You know, and I was like, this, this, this belongs in the Library of Congress, this interview. You know, but it was like, I played it back. Or somebody, actually it was Jeff Brown from the news I would listen to it. He was like, listen to what he said here and then to what you asked. And the two have nothing in common. Like literally you didn't respond to certain things that he says is you did a good job. Clearly you knew about the guy. That's nice, but you didn't really, it didn't go into an interesting place. So I hated Jeff Brown ever since then. I don't like him. <laughs> uh, I do now 
eight years later or whatever it is, know what he's talking about because you have to know the subject matter and you definitely have to prepare, but you don't need to be showy about it. And I think this latest series that I've done, Brief But Spectacular, is probably for me the least showy thing I've ever done in terms of the anonymity of the author. It's an interview without the interviewer. It's just the person speaking to camera. And I totally cut myself out. And the vanity of it is that I'm asking, I'm just not concerned with how I come across. I'm not concerned about asking a stupid question. I don't mind pushing someone to explain it at a really simple level so that everybody can understand it. And, and in fact, ways that they might not have been asked before. And um, I also don't mind like in an interview, letting silence come in because I feel like silence, not jumping all over the silence. It sometimes it brings people out a little more that they awkward silence is a decision. It, it's a decision if you want to make it awkward or not, it could just be silence. So you can often, sometimes you interrupt someone because you just want to fill the silence and instead just letting them. Hey, Matt. No, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I heard the, the pet cemetery guy that he does that, that he'll just sit for like long periods until people are so uncomfortable that they just pour out, you know, all their darkest secrets just to keep, keep it from being silent. Wow. So this is cool. So you're kind of bringing all your interview stuff into now creating new characters and kind of stretching yourself in that way and, and into sort of fiction, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. And, and the one last thing about the inter interview thing is I do like to hear how they've been interviewed before. So like for the brief but spectacular, I'll listen to every fresh air, every long form they've ever done. So I know all the jokes, anecdotes, stories. I know everything before. And if I really think it'll help our piece, I'll prompt them to say, hey, can you tell the story where you were at the supermarket and you had this great idea, you know, and, or you can, you can go further. You can use it to just go further if there was something else you wanted to know. I mean, maybe it's cheating. I don't think it is, though, because it's all out there. But it's just you can advance the conversation. So I always get frustrated with like, a, I, I, although I do like Mark Barron, I get annoyed that his whole thing is, uh, well, hey, we're just, I do no research. Where are you from? And I'm like, where are you from? We could, we could just Wikipedia. It's, they're from Cincinnati. You know, like we don't need to do that. So I, 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 get, I, like when, I like when people take things seriously and like put an effort in. Now what's interesting is that your links are, are all to you, you two, like do you have a website Speaking of research, <laughs> I know I'm. I'm going to get a website. I I do, I do not have a website. I just don't. I don't know. There's enough crap out there that uh, there, I can point people to stuff. But you're right. You're right. I, I need to get a website. There is a Steve Goldblum in wealth management. Yes. Ah, he's not doing anything. <laughs> what does it matter? We have nothing in common. Yeah, it's actually your sideline, isn't it? I, I probably annoy him. Yeah. Can you imagine? He's like, this clown is out there acting like an idiot under his own name, and I'm, like, trying to run a nice, uh, reputable firm. Well, there's an Angie Powers who's some kind of um, model. model, like, exercise <laughs> model. Very odd. Very, very odd. But you can see that Angie Powers in not very much clothing. Uh, That's exciting. In a kind of mid-90s way, I don't even know, like, I don't know. 
So she's probably in wealth management now too, yeah. but yeah. so, yeah. So I guess like, we're just kind of curious about what the next project for Steve Goldblum is. Um, well, I'm doing a sketch series. I mean, I feel like I'm at a, an interesting place in, in my work life right now where the movie's done, you know, we're going to roll that out and I'm excited about everything to come with that. And then, um, the PBS series goes weekly. I love doing that. That's the greatest job in the world to be able to speak to people who are interesting. Um, I have a sketch series with AOL coming out in February. So AOL is still functioning. Yes. AOL. Okay. Okay. Just uh, they're alive and well. I mean, hell, why not? Maybe you'll never see it, but I, I don't know. But they, they uh, 12 videos with them that I had a lot of fun doing. They're all like five minutes, but it was really fun. And I got, to, again, like if I get an opportunity like that, I don't waste it. I like, I each, they're like mini pilots. So it's like, oh, I want to work with someone. If I want to try something out, if I want to try a character, I can just, you know, do it on their dime and, uh, <laughs> and, and just see how it goes. Uh, so that's, I'm done shooting that. Um, and then out here, you're just always like, I'm in LA. So you're just always going out. I have an agent and the agent sends me to all these meetings. I have a meeting later today at two. It's like a screen test for something. And I feel like, you know, one of those things, I'll probably do like 10 things and like one of them will stick, you know, come the new, come, uh, in the next, in the coming months. And besides that, I'm always trying to generate my own work. Because if I was just to rely on the other work, that if, if I was to rely on the work that people came and said, here you go, I would literally, I would have to have a job in a restaurant. I mean, I would, I would have to be serving coffee. I, would, there's, I wouldn't be able to afford a living. The money that I make or the things that I've done, it's all been generated by like my contacts. Now it's good, but that's like a good thing for people to know. I feel like we're in acting or you just have to create your own work, create your own body of work and then show it to all the agents and and say, look how, you know, I'm a self-starter, blah, blah, blah. So, but they like that because they're like, okay, good. Well, let's talk about that because this is hard for people. There's like, it's a combination of like the chutzpah to like get out there and be like, here's, <laughs> here's me, here's me and not, you know, and do it in a way that's charming. And yeah. then the other thing is the tough skin to like take, like you're saying, one out of 10 things. I mean, a lot of people that'll do them in right there. The nine failure, you know, failures. Right, right. Oh, yeah, you're right. That? <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I have a tremendous amount of chutzpah. I mean, like even just to think that why why anything that I think is funny should other people see or why should they see my face and not somebody else's face? You really have to believe that you have something to offer. I believe that I have something to offer. You know what I mean? And, and where does that believe? I mean, I believe you too, but like, but like to, if you were advising someone else how to nurture that feeling, can you, I mean, I don't know if, if it just is. I don't know. I think if you do feel that way, I mean, look, some people feel that way and it, and it doesn't work out and it's like, well, that's, that's got to be difficult too. And who knows if it'll, you know, continue to work for me or whatever, but you get, you have to feel that way and just accept it. And I, I think like, um, I've been encouraged enough to keep doing it now that I'm like, okay, I feel less and less self-conscious about putting myself out there. And the other thing is like in terms of rejection, 
I mean, there's just no, I, I've, uh, for, I mean, Joel from the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. That guy goes on auditions every single day. And it's hard to get an audition. It's hard to even be in a position where you're auditioning. Most people aren't auditioning who are actors and they don't get auditions. This guy's at a level where he's getting rejected every single day. But it's bittersweet because he got the audition. Right. You know? And he has a tremendous amount of confidence. Even he can get down and get the blues and like everybody else. But I think you just have to say, uh, you know what, this is, this is, this is, I'm doing it for me. I'm, and it's, you're working like that's part of your job is to be rejected mm -hmm. and, and just to get over that. And, and I feel like the faster you get over it, um, that shows a lot of progress. The same way if you take negative, like if I see something nasty written about me two years ago or three years ago, that would have taken like a, a couple days to wear off. Whereas now I can, the recovery time is much quicker. If I saw something nasty, I could probably get over it within, you know, an hour. <laughs> because of exposure? <laughs> like you're just like, okay, that's fine. That's, first of all, if someone doesn't like you in this business that usually means you're doing something right because more people have seen it so in the beginning like when I no one was seeing anything that I ever did all I was hearing was nice things because it was just your friends saying great job you know good for you you're doing something and then when you see you're opened up you're like oh my god there's a lot of people that don't like it and that's actually a weird compliment because you're getting out there you're getting seen and of course no one not everyone is going to love you and I just think the sooner people accept, not everyone's going to love you and you're going to face a ton of rejection, then uh, if you still feel like you have something to offer, you know, I would keep going, like keep, keep trying. It sounds, it does sound a little bit like a mash episode where someone has been exposed repeatedly to horrible things and <laughs> getting more and more used to dealing with it. So, um, I love it though. I think this is the most yeah. important thing. Absolutely. I think so too. But I also think that it's like the equanimity or like how you take compliments as well. So if you can't, if you're not going to take the bad stuff, you can't take all the good stuff. So people tell you you're so, you're doing so great. It's nice, but you can't really believe, I mean, you have to just be, have bring some consistency to like a really, really unstable environment. Mm. So how do you do that? Uh, I try not to overreact. I mean, I used to get very excited when people said really, really nice things. I don't get as excited anymore. And, I, and that's much healthier. Mm -hmm. You know, you're like, so yeah. none, not, neither the, the, the fanatic, uh, you know, compliments and the, and the bitter rejections is, is really relevant to your forward motion. You can't just look at the compliments. Yeah. Although we all like to, you know, that, that is very nice. But something you, uh, you do, uh, get seen and people like it, but uh, you know, it's we also live in a really like exposed medium now where everybody's getting likes and validated. And, you know, it's an odd, it's an odd existence. It is a weird, weird time certainly because you get feedback just for being like in high school. I didn't yeah. like her dress today. It's like, wait a minute. Why is there like a whole website about what I'm wearing today? Yeah. Or, um, I remember actually like, Back in the day, I worked in a technology company, and there was a not-so-pleasant reference to someone who was clearly me, and which was the fat dyke on the second floor, in the fast company thing where when our company went under. And that was a sort of like, 
whoa, like here's this moment where I'm in the middle of a public forum, not as a public person. So everybody's on some level dealing with that same thing, like figuring out how to be okay with who they are. Right. Constantly getting feedback in social media. Yeah. And I don't know what the answer for that is really to like, just un- like live our lives differently or unplug or. But I hear you also really bringing that into your process where you're saying, Oh, I'm sending this to Nanny and Heather every week and getting notes and going back in and, you know, just, just being willing to be in motion with, with that response. Yeah. I feel like if I've really worked hard on something, I, I truly am confident in it. Like, it's just like, and like I was saying about the presentation, like if you're really prepared, you're con- you, you can handle any question, you can handle any feedback. And I, I feel like I've put things out in the world that weren't always that well prepared or like well thought out. And I've been burned on them too, where you're like, Oh, that, someone sees that and they're like, Oh, that's what you do. And you're like, Oh, that's not really what I do where I should have spent a little that maybe needed a little, there was a little careless to put it out that way. So I like, I really, I feel like it's a privilege to be able to show people your work and like, especially in the arts to like have any kind of an audience or show anybody your work is such a huge privilege that I do really, really try. And I'm, I'm trying even more now to just really like be thoughtful about it and get feedback and put something out. And, and if I'm really confident with it, then I, I, I honestly don't mind if it doesn't connect with everyone. Cause I feel like at least I spent the time putting something out there that I'm happy with. And like that trust is also true just in yourself. Do you feel like that, that attitude sort of developed as you created a larger body of work? Like were you able to get through that by creating enough things to kind of come to that conclusion? Yeah, I think so. Cause you see what you look back on it. Like if I watch something, I see, Oh, we, we should have, we should have devoted a few more. We, we should have met about this earlier. There should have been a few more discussions um, about this. Like, uh, yeah, but it's crazy. I mean, it goes back like somebody, the guy that I made a short, a film. Oh my, this is true. The, I made a movie in university in my second or third year of university, second year. Was this one called relationships are complicated? No, this, uh, you're looking at the IMDb. This was never not on IMDb. This is pre-YouTube and it was uh, called Lowercase. It was a 45 minute film. Oh my God. That I wrote and acted in and a guy directed it and, and it won our film festival at school. Okay. Now, I remember, I thought this was like brilliant. I was like, this is my man, I'll never top this. I remember thinking that and I just watched, but it's not saved anywhere. So I, there was no YouTube link or anything. And I, you know, it, it was made in 02, 03. And I got a link, I got a Vimeo link this month with it. And I'm not saying this to be coy or cute. It's one of the worst things I've ever seen. <laughs> 45 minutes long. It probably, deserve, it probably deserves to be about five minutes. Maybe. Maybe. And, and even then, I don't know that I would show it to you or want to show it to you. It's 45 minutes long, and, I, and it's one of the worst things I've ever seen. And I was just like, what part of me, belie- I truly believed it was brilliant. You know, I remember thinking that. And, and I was so proud of it. And I look at him now, and I'm like, oh, my God. And first of all, everything has a fade in, every scene. If I was going to get a sandwich, it would fade. <laughs> back, it fades up every moment. <laughs> Like, I clearly figured out how to use the fade. I was just like, fade. Let's add another. 
<laughs> no problem. We'll just play. We'll do another fade. Yeah. Without being coy, there is definitely like if we don't have the ability to grow, like yeah. at that moment, that probably was like an amazing thing for you to have have accomplished, right? And I think you know if you can look back and have a little bit of like that first, that awkward, like, Oh moment, but then getting to a little bit of like compassion. Like if that was some other high school kid who was like, look what I did college kid, middle school. Anyway, um, <laughs> if it was a younger person, you would have that like, Oh, that's so cute. You thought this took 45 minutes and you will learn and grow. But I will say Zach, who you know, was with yeah. you. He was staying here, and I and I remember I was like, I'll show I'll show this to Zach because I remember it being good. I'm sure it's not very good now. It was so bad that I really didn't want to show it to him. Like it, I, it was I didn't even think it would be funny, to, like in, in an ironic way. It, and it, I mean, he obviously thought it was ridiculous. So I showed him select minute. I didn't even show him the whole thing. I fast forwarded to scenes that I. I that I thought he could look at. The revised. Yeah, I'll never, I'll, yeah, I've destroyed it. Uh, I, I have one, I want to go back to one thing before we do our final segment, which is uh, early on you talked about finding that, that scene, the, the idea of, of one grandparent dying while you're visiting, but you talked about um, the comedy and the conflict in there. And I wanted to ask you, you know, are those, are those always connected? Are those, you know, kind of just about the relationship between that, this being funny and this being tense and con conflictual? <laughs> I think they're really like they're aided by each other. Like you could do something that's just funny and you could do something that just has a lot of conflict. I find that things that have a lot of tension are funny and that you have inherent conflict are funny. That's just how I interpret things. So I laugh when I'm not supposed to. I laugh, you know, at death. I laugh when I was getting in trouble, I would always laugh and that would make things worse, you know? So I always feel like there's something innately comedic about death, about sex, about anger, about conflict, but they're really helpful because it sets things in motion. I think it's interesting. And I, I watch a lot of stuff now. I think we're, everybody says this, you know, that we're in one of the greatest phases of TV and it's the stuff that just goes up now, like the old TV where it's like, well, we'll just make TV for the sake of making TV. You can't really watch it anymore because there's such good content out there that's just riveting and commands so much attention, whether it's, you know, transparent or Fargo or something, you're just kind of like, you can't really G chat while you watch, you right. know, you have to just put things down and focus. And that's such a great place. It's really intimidating. Cause then you think if you're writing, like, could you write something like that? Could you, I mean, I think so though. I think if you look in the darkest places or you look at and it, it usually is in the darkest places. Like I, one of the weirdest things about watching Transparent is how unsettling. I think if I was watching it week to week, it would be better. But I devoted like ten hours to watch like a ten hour movie. That's unhealthy. I mean, that, that is unhealthy because that they, they take you to some dark corners. And I, I, I really thought it was like a brilliant show, but I also just felt like kind of weak after the ten hour. Like I was like, what am I doing? Like I just I need to. Like, Dirty. Dirty after yeah, it was like fun now. Yeah. I don't know if you felt the same way. Well, we loved it, but, but we can't watch anything in 10 hour stints because we have we kids. We have kids so. who wake up and are like, what's going on? <laughs> but we so still binge watched yes. it as much as we could. Yeah, and we yeah. got to the end and I just the other day and I was like, 
well, let's watch the next one. We have time. And it was like, she's like, that was the it. Last one. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say that like, um, when, when you were mentioning laughing at death, I think that, you know, I have a very vivid memory that I feel both ashamed of and sort of grateful for, which is my brother and I laughing hysterically through my grandfather's funeral. Mm-hmm. And it was both like, we have no idea how to handle what's happening here. But it was also my brother and I having a close moment that we were both clearly doing something completely inappropriate, but we were doing it together. And so that made it better. But it was, you know, one of those things where it's like you do have with comedy, if you really push kind of into those dark places, it becomes much funnier. Right. And and in the context of a family where like sobbing hysterically would have been as inappropriate, if not more so. (laughs) (laughs) So well, I, we only discuss that because that's not storytelling. But but actually, <laughs> the, the shows we admire is a good segue into our um, steal this segment, where uh, T. S. Eliot said, uh, "Amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal." So we like to end each episode looking at something you've come across that you want to take and make your own. Um, so, do you want to do you want us to model it, or would you like to go first? Uh, I'm ha- either either is good. Uh, all right. Well, you, let's let you go further than you model. You model. <laughs> uh, I I'm obsessed. With, I think I was born fifty years too late. Mm. I'm obsessed with a really old school style of comedy. I think I'm tremendously influenced by it. Like your show of shows, Sid Caesar, yeah. is one of my favorites. And I'll 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 go down like a rabbit hole of watching that content. I would love to steal the sketches used in your show of shows by Sid Caesar and play the parts with either play the straight man, the Carl Reiner character or play the Sid Caesar character. But that to me is so funny and relevant. And I think what makes it really hold up today in a way that it's not even being done anymore. I don't know. It's not certainly not being done on SNL, like with the, because there's cue cards and you know, everybody's so it's sort of cute, right? Like everybody's kind of affected, but he's such a good actor. The old comedians were such good actors. I mean, maybe they were crazy people off the stage. I don't know. We didn't know as much about their lives back then. But, like, the commitment to the humor and seriousness of it and the physicality of it all, there were no cue cards. It was all, some of it improvised, but a lot of it written, I think, by people like Mel Brooks and stuff like that. But the acting was so good. And that's uh, something I would love to steal. I'd love to do that. Awesome. You got one? No, <laughs> not yet. You I, I, well, well, you can, you can steal something from what Steve talked about too. One is um, that relate to what, what we've talked about today. I've been reading Elizabeth Bowen, who um, she said, speech is what people do to each other. And I love that line when I teach dialogue. So I went and sort of found some other stuff by her. She wrote short stories and novels starting in the 1920s. She was being published young. And she, so she actually has in this collection that I'm looking at um, a lot of introductions to her her work that's getting re-released say in the 50s from the 20s and the 30s and so she talks about her old work and it's kind of interesting just like you were talking about you know looking back at the work selecting the pieces which ones seem good now which ones seem bad so I'm a little bit inspired and scared to go back and I've actually been doing this a little bit and look at my old work and see what's there and and kind of learn from it you know learn from this you know even the 
the shame or, the, you know, I mean, and one hopes one has gotten better. But anyway, so I, I love that. Um, so I think I'll steal that from, from you and Elizabeth Bowen. <laughs> All right. Well, here's my idea then. I'm going to take Steve's idea of sort of not taking the compliments or the negative you know, reinforcement too seriously, but I'm going to actually apply it to myself so that those voices are equally unreliable as the people external to myself. Oh, like your inner voice. Of, yes, of because sometimes I'm like, oh my God, this is terrible. And the next day I'm like, this is the best thing <laughs> I've ever written. And so if I don't take either of those seriously, I'm more likely to get stuff done in general. So that's going to be what I take away. So thank you, Steve. Thank you. What are the two of you working on right now? What's the next project? Um, let's see. I am. I just finished revising a novel that that uh, made the rounds and 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 didn't sell. So I, I completely revised it, and I'm I'm just going to reread it one more time and send it off to my agent. And then, meanwhile, I'm doing an early draft of of another novel. So that's my my primary thing. It's a Kafka comedy. And um, <laughs> I say, while you're making meetings, I just want to say I have a part for Lena Dunham. If you run across her, okay. it's Kafka's Last Lover, Dora, and uh, it's a very complex kind of uh, piece. So if you if you see her, let her know. We're trying to get her. We're trying. It's. I think we're going to get Jenny Connor, uh -huh. her partner, her writing partner. Nice, oh, nice, excellent. Well, That's good. Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, I am in the process right now of. Um, you know, I'm in this film program, and so what I was going to do within the context of the program is I'm shooting a nano-budgeted feature next year. And um, Gabe is working with me, and I'm trying to lasso Corinne, and we're doing that. And so I am in the middle of rewriting the script that felt so much more solid a few months ago. So um, that's what I'm in the project. Did you say nano-budget? Yes. Yeah, so micro-budget small. Yeah. Nano budget is, smaller. you know, orders of <laughs> okay. magnitude smaller. So, got it. Got it. She's, she's doing this cool thing when Gabe is like wearing the camera and it's all, um, I don't remember the language for it, but it's all in motion, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a moving camera, available light, 360 kind of process. So. Oh, is it shot in 3D? I mean, it's not 3D, it's just that we're doing, you know, like go, if you look at, um, like, I'm trying to think. Like, Wild was sort of shot this way. It was available light. Um, Children of Men okay. shot this way. And it's just, you know, so Gabe is in this ridiculous outfit that I put her in. What? Is it like a steady cam rig? It's like a steady cam, but it's less expensive. And um, so it's a gimbal. It's a three axis gimbal that I have. And then this ridiculous outfit that I put Gabe in. Is it like the Ghostbusters pack and it comes over like this? Yeah, it's like that. I've, I've exactly. That exactly. So that's yeah. the nano budget way. That's the nano budget way. That's very cool. Oh yeah. Steve, before you go, will you tell well, what is he working on? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Before you go, will you tell <laughs> what you're working on and where to find you? Okay. Well, I just hit one thing. So I'm gonna work on being a better actor. That's what I'm working on right now. And I went to a class Monday night. I got into this great acting class. It's the guy that wrote Fight Club. Oh wow. Jim Ools. And it's uh called The Safe House, and it's set in Santa Monica. And I went and I, it was my first time going, actually, as an actor, and I had two scenes. So I'm, and the way they do it is you read the scenes cold, 6.30, rehearse for an hour, and then perform them at 8 o'clock. So I had two scenes. One was this, like, introverted North Dakota guy in a scene, and the other was a news anchor. Okay, big, big bravado. And I'm like, oh, well, 
hell, I'll kill the news anchor. And uh, I don't know about this guy. And it was so loud that I couldn't, I was doing a, like, how are you? Nice to see you. I, I don't know. Is doing kind of like an accent. But I couldn't hear what that sounded like because it was so friggin' loud in the rehearsal. So I'm like, I might just sound insane. And then we did it. And I'm like, I go out and I said, like one, uh, like the first line is like, she goes, honey, are you going to get, and I'm like, oh, I'll get, you just worry about the potatoes and the beans. I'll get the, or whatever. And it killed. And like, people are like, they, like we had to wait. And I'm like, oh my God, this feels so good. What is going on? I didn't know what I was doing, but it felt, I was really committed. Then I do the news anchor and it's all flat. It, you know, we do it. It's sort of like, meh, okay, moving on. And it was the other thing. So my takeaway is nobody has any, I have, you have no idea. You have no idea what the response is going to be, but I'm so proud that like, I want to, I want to spend more time in that, like doing the less obvious things for me and the smaller things and the subtleties and nuance and all that. I would love to explore that with acting. So this year I'm going to devote a big portion of it to just improving myself as a performer and focusing. And I'd like to see where that takes me. Awesome. That's wonderful. I'm Yeah. We're looking forward to the release of Remember Me and um, and seeing you in, in all of these wonderful things. Can you tell people how to find you and track you since you don't have a website? <laughs> yeah, you can't go to my website, so I'll get back to you on that. But you can follow me at Steve Goldblum on Twitter and uh, the movie Remember Me and look at briefbutspectacular.com to find all the videos we make for PBS. So that's the best way. Awesome. We'll, we'll link to all of that in the show notes. And thank you so much. It was really fun to talk yeah, to you. Thank you. So fun. Thanks, guys. All right. All right. Stay have, strong. Have a, good, have a good meeting this afternoon. Yes. I will. I will. It's good to talk to you. I hope I see you guys uh, out when I come up. Yeah, yeah. We would love it. We would love it. We'll come meet you. <laughs> all right. Take care.